The, uh, the Old Testament reading, it's uh, chapter 17, verses 14 to 17. We're going back two and a half thousand years, and it's Moses talking to the Israelites before entering the promised land. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Right, that's the end of the Old Testament reading. And now we go on to the Gospels. Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. This is Jesus saying that. And they replied, let us let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Jesus said, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. 
Our Father God, we pray for the guiding of your Holy Spirit as we discern principles for our politics and government from Bible texts that reflect very different historical and cultural contexts from our own. Give us wisdom, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the second sermon in a series on God and government to focus our Christian thinking in the run-up to the general election. And the subject this morning is good political leadership, and of course bad as well. Now there is something of debate about what is the nature of a good political leader. And I'm not thinking of the nonsensical discussions about what they look like or whether they've had their hair cut. What makes for a good leader? Is it a politician who can uh, relate well to the electorate, perhaps to a particular group in the electorate, e.g. Mr. Farage and the working class voters? Is it one who has widespread support in his party and can control his MPs? Is it a person who carries weight in international fora, who is effective in battling for Britain? Is it a politician who acts decisively when he's in office, giving the sense of being in charge of events rather than events being in charge of him or her? And that, of course, is a model which is aspired to by both Lady Thatcher and Mr. Blair. Now, the Bible tells us a good deal about good and bad leadership, but it's always in a cultural or political context that is very different from our situation in early 21st century Britain. So to understand and apply biblical teaching, we need to explore the underlying principles of leadership and then translate them into our own situation. So let's begin with the passage from Deuteronomy 17, which deals with Israel's desire for a king to rule over them. There are strong parallels with the passage in 1 Samuel 8, where the people come to Samuel uh, at the end of his life, and they say, your sons are no good, so please will you anoint a king as your successor. Samuel is extremely reluctant, but in the end he acquiesces, and in obedience to God's uh, Samuel 8.22, the Lord answered, listen to them, and give them a king. Now, Deuteronomy 17 makes three points about kings. The first is that the authority of a king is derived from God, from God's authority. Secondly, the king is subject to the law. And thirdly, kings easily succumb to the lures of money, sex, and power. So let's take those three in turn. So first of all, the authority of a king is derived from God. Let me remind you of verses 14 and 15. When you enter the land and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you 
one who is not a brother Israelite. I think we need to know a little bit of the background here. The pattern in the ancient Near East was that of dominant powers like Assyria, Babylon, and Persia who ruled their empires by appointing local kings as vassals. And their role was to sustain sustain the authority of their suzerain in the land, pay tribute as required, and particularly not to make alliances with other powers. And that pattern is reproduced here. Yahweh is the suzerain. The Israelite king rules as his vassal and must be steadfast in his allegiance. So the king's authority is derived from God's authority. This is a point which is generalized by St. Paul in Romans 13. Let me remind you, Romans 13 verse 1, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. One immediate implication is that the ruler is not to become the object of worship. That, of course, was pretty typical of ancient Near Eastern rulers and later the Roman emperors. Happily, none of our political leaders has such pretensions, as far as I know. But there have been examples in the modern era from Hitler onwards, who have become secular gods. I fear, for example, that Vladimir Putin is rapidly developing such a cult of personality. So the authority of a king is derived from God. Secondly, the king is subject to the law. Let me just read a couple of verses more from our passage in Deuteronomy 17. When the king takes the throne of his kingdom... He is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law, taken from that of the priests who are Levites. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees, and not consider himself better than his brothers and turn from the law to the right or to the left." Again, this follows an ancient Near Eastern pattern. A vassal king was given a copy of the treaty under which he was appointed by the suzerain. And he was required to read it publicly from time to time to remind the people that they were subordinates and to discourage rebellion. And this custom is simply reproduced here. Israel's king is required to take a copy of the covenant stipulations, probably a copy of the book of Deuteronomy, from the original copy deposited with the Levites in the temple. He is personally to write it out. And it was to be a very public document. And the king was to base his rule on the contents of this document and follow its requirements in his private life. 
It seems a long way away. It seems very strange. But the implications are truly profound. The ruler is subject to a greater moral law. God's moral ordering of his world. So he's not permitted to do what he likes if he is an autocrat, nor in a democratic context is he or she permitted to contravene the moral law even if it is electorally popular. Perhaps the current debates about euthanasia and the end of life come to mind. But thirdly, the writer of Deuteronomy says that rulers easily succumb to the temptations of money, sex, and power. Let me remind you of these verses. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself. Horses equals power. He must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. Harem equals sex. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. That speaks for itself. And that's an issue which is emphasized by Samuel in 1 Samuel 8. He explains to the people the cost of a king in terms of people, land, and tithes. He says, your sons will be called up for military service. Your daughters will be required to go and serve in the royal household. Your land will be appropriated by the king. And there will be a tax on crops and livestock. A good leader is one who is so alert to the temptations afforded by high political office that he or she avoids anything that might be compromising in these regards. I applaud the somewhat eccentric uh, example of Clement Attlee when he was Prime Minister after World War II in this country. He refused to live in Number 10 Downing Street. He accepted none of the trappings of office. His wife drove him around in an old Austin 7 car, and he sometimes took the underground to go home at the end of the day. One day on the underground, a fellow traveler said to him, has anyone ever told you that you look extraordinarily like the Prime Minister? <laughs> to which he replied briefly, so I have been told. <laughs> so we found, in a sense, three clues, as it were, as to what makes a good or indeed a bad leader. But I think there's a further quality we want to explore. We touched not briefly in the last sermon in our discussion of Romans 13, 1 to 7, where political authorities are described as servants for your good. And that prompts consideration of the passage in Mark 10. You'll recall what happens. James and John approach Jesus to ask him to give them precedence in his kingdom, perhaps sensing an opportunity to displace Peter, who had been rebuked by Jesus in chapter 8. Now, Jesus' response is to remind them that the cup, which is an Old Testament metaphor for suffering, 
comes before the throne in his kingdom. He then goes on to express a contrast between secular authority and how things will be in his kingdom. Secular authority, Jesus says, lord it over, exercise authority over their subjects. And that's not necessarily pejorative. He's merely saying that's how things are. But, Jesus says, not so in my kingdom. Jesus, the Son of Man, is our example. He came not to be served, but to serve. Now, you could take the implication that we have to accept less from our secular political leaders. I say yes, but also perhaps no. You see, God's people in the Old Testament and in the New Testament are models of how human life should be lived. An ideal which is difficult to implement because of human sinfulness, but an ideal that we should nonetheless affirm. A few years ago, the university sent me on a training course which included a session on leadership. The trainer listed types of leadership military, political administrative, seeking consensus by negotiation, innovator, bubbling over with new ideas, one who leads by example, a role model, spiritual leaders whose claims are based on closeness to God or gods. Servant leadership was on the list. The trainer explained the other kinds of leadership in some detail. He then reached servant leadership and commented, we know that doesn't work. I have to say that doubled my determination to make it work in the leadership role that I had been given in the university. Now, I know that all politicians claim to serve their people. But actually, of course, the acid test is what they do. Are they really seeking the common good of all their people, or are they favoring particular groups? I have a good example, which is not exactly a standard political leader, and that is the Queen. I think that throughout her reign, she has shown an amazing quality of servanthood in the important role that she has. Now, the Bible does not lack examples of bad rulers. It runs from Pharaoh, who oppressed the people of Israel in Egypt, through Saul, the first king of Israel, the litany of bad kings of Israel like Jeroboam and Ahab, to Nebuchadnezzar and Darius, to Pontius Pilate and the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and the New Testament. And if you ask the question, well, why were they bad rulers? I think it's because they failed on at least one and often many more of these four characteristics. They have pursued a cult of personality. They ruled without regard to moral law. They've fallen big time for the temptations of money, sex, and power. And in particular, 
they failed to be a servant of all their people. So when we want to evaluate the qualities of our potential political leaders, we need to judge whether there are indications of the character and commitment that we have explored in the sermon. Do they acknowledge in any way that political authority comes from God's authority? Do they accept that government must be subject to the structure of moral law and not just what happens to be popular? Do they shun the temptations of money, sex, and power? Do they truly seek to serve all of us pursuing the common good? These are the questions which should be exercising our minds, not how they look or how they speak. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for those who aspire to high political office in our country in the upcoming general election. We pray that they will understand the limits to their authority, that they will recognize your moral law, that they will truly seek to serve us all, and that they will avoid the temptations of high office so that our country may continue to be wisely and justly governed. In Jesus' name, amen.